promises office. The promises often go by the wayside, but not so with our, our current president. He's doing all that he can to keep those promises. Well, this morning we turn our attention to the Bible. We're going to hear about God's promises. And, and the good news is this, is that God will keep all of his promises. Donald Trump, as much as he tries, he can't possibly keep all his campaign promises. I mean, just the balance of powers that we have in our government will stifle some of his efforts. Um, the bureaucracy of our day will grind some of his initiatives to a, a halt, if not a, a slowdown. Um, but he's going to try. But, but not so with God. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And it's that God but we will learn today. So if you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Our text today is verses 13 to 17. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you. 941 on, on that, uh, the hymnal, pew Bible rather. And uh, we're in Romans chapter 4. I, I, I hope to finish it. Uh, I'm not preaching next week, but I'll be here next Sunday. Clark Richardson from the Crossway Network, Crossway Fox Valley, will be here preaching. Uh, but the week after that, we'll finish Romans chapter 4, Lord willing. Uh, but we've been in Romans chapter 4, now this is our, our third week. And um, we, we've just been seeing that it's a chapter in which Paul is trying over and over to show that salvation in Jesus Christ is really nothing new. I mean, this, this dates all the way back to Abraham. In fact, Abraham dominates Romans chapter 4. His name is mentioned a dozen and a half times here in these, these verses. He's just talked about over and over again. And Paul's argument is this, is that, is that Abraham and even David, <clears throat> slides in there, verses 6 through 8, but they were saved in the same way that we are, by grace, through faith. And, and two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 8, and we saw that Abraham was, was counted righteous by faith. And, and it really comes from Genesis 15, verse 6, which says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And right, and a simple way to think about that is the Lord is in the heavens, and, and Abraham believes, and God, in return, grants him righteousness. That's the, the message. One Verses 1 through 8, counted righteous, counted righteous, counted righteous. Three times repeated there. That's the deal. This is how we come to God. We believe in God. We believe in Christ. We believe all he's done. And then God, in turn, looks down upon us and counts us as righteous. Well, last week we looked at verses 9 through 12. And and Paul was making the point that Abraham was counted righteous before his circumcision. Right? And, and we looked at this chart here, which just charted the, the history and the life of Abraham. In Genesis 12, he was called to, to go to the land that, that I will show you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then that promise in chapter 15 and verse 6, that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the sign of circumcision came in chapter 17, two chapters later. And if you do the math, right, you figure out, we talked about that last week, more than 14 years later, that Paul, that circumcision came. And Paul was simply make, making this, this point, is that, that Abraham believed before he was circumcised, before Genesis 17. And so that, that makes him the first, as I call the first Gentile, right? The, the one who believed without being circumcised. So he could be the father of those who believe without circumcision, without the law, and the father of those also under the law as he received the sign and seal of circumcision. And, and the importance from last week, I just can't stress this enough, is that 
Abraham was made righteous before any religious act or ritual. And so likewise with we, it's not your circumcision, it's not your baptism, it's not your participation in the Lord's Supper these next six weeks. It's not some religious ritual, it's not some religious effort, it's not your church attendance or your giving or your dedication or your service. It's your faith, and it's your faith that God counts as righteousness. In our text this morning, Paul's basically going to be saying the same thing again. It's what I try to do, I battle every week, I want to preach the gospel to you, but not with the same words, but in different ways, and that's what Paul does this morning, he's going to come with a slightly different angle. This time he's going to look at it from the standpoint of of God's promise, and, and the promises of God, and he's going to develop the relationship of how it is that faith works with the promise, and he's going to stick in the law there, right? Our, our works. How does the, the law stick in there as well? So, so I want you to listen for these three words. I read verses 13 through 17. Listen for promise, faith, and law because they come up several times. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no wrath, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as is written I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. My message this morning is entitled Promise, the Promise, Faith, and the Law. These these three things kind of mix and mingle in our text. I think Paul is just trying to put these things forth. And my my first point is, is this, right? The promise comes by faith, or it doesn't, doesn't come by law. It's the opposite of that. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, they would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, one of the things that we looked at last week, right, was, was when's the timing of the law, when was the timing with circumcision and faith? And we found that circumcision comes after faith, it was verse 13, what Paul is doing, he said, okay, let's, let's not just look at the life of Abraham, but let's scope back and look at the life of Israel. In fact, let's go all the way to Moses. And so we're going to have a similar drawing here. We think about uh, Abraham, the promise to Abraham came 2000 B.C. His story is told in Genesis 12 through 25. His son is Isaac, and Isaac's son is Jacob, and Jacob's son is Joseph. And then they <clears throat> go into Egypt And they become slaves there in in Exodus chapter 1. And then the law comes in 1400 B.C. with Moses, Exodus 20, Exodus 19, 20, and the coming of the law at Mount Sinai. And uh, the simple observation that Paul makes is this, is that uh, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law in 1400 B.C., but came through... The righteousness of faith. Now, it can hardly be more obvious than that. I mean, if we strip everything down, here it is, right? The promise, 2000 B.C., and the law, 1400 B.C., hundreds of years later. And see, when God made the promise to Abraham in 2000 B.C., Abraham 
knew nothing of the law. Uh, well, you might argue, well, maybe he knew about circumcision, um, but because you can read that in the law in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. But the command to circumcise didn't initially come as a law. It came as a, as a sign of the covenant. It came more as a, a covenantal promise that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations, as he's going to quote in, in verse 17. Um, and I think that the whole idea there about being the father of many nations is what circumcision really was about, is a sign of that. And that really gets us into trying to understand what it means that Abraham would be heir of the world. I think what it is is the, the, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, the scope of that went far beyond just Abraham. And it says that, that Genesis chapter 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we who are, as Darren read for us from Galatians chapter 3, we who are of faith are children of Abraham, that the, the blessings to Abraham right, extend to many, extend beyond. All believers can ultimately trace their faith back to the faith of Abraham, the promises of God. And when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he described it as a feast of heaven with Abraham at the table, possibly the head. Well, besides from Jesus, right? But it says, Many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 8, verse 11. So he just, he just sees like many, the, the world is going to come and they're going to recline, and we are going to recline at the table with the patriarchs. Because it all traces back there. And I think one of the reasons why Abraham is front and center in this description of the kingdom is like this feast is really because he was the one who received the promise by faith, right? Abraham is the father of all who believe. And this promise did not come through the law. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And for us here this morning, it comes the same way. The promise of God comes to us in Christ Jesus. It comes to us by promise. Have you ever thought about that? Your entire eternal destiny is based upon a promise. Actually, it's based upon lots of promises. But his promises like Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is, we're justified by faith. That's the, the end result of chapter 4. He begins in chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have that, we have peace with God. And that is the promise of of God that we have, that we, have, we are at peace with him. Or promises like Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and the promise is this, is that we are in Christ Jesus. God promises there's no condemnation for us. Or, or promises like Romans 8 verse 32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's a promise that we have is that God, who, who didn't spare Jesus, won't spare anything for us as well. Or promises like Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your salvation is based upon God's promise that Romans 10.9 is true. Our whole life, our whole eternity is based upon our covenant-keeping promise-keeping, faithful God who will keep his promises. In fact, one Old Testament scholar in the past generation, Walt Kaiser, was so convinced of it that when he went to summarize the plan of the Bible, 
he summarized it with the word promise. In fact, uh, really, his, his, his theology has become known as promise theology. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, If the text of Scripture is to be allowed to first speak for itself before our assessments are made, then we would vigorously like to propose that the element of the promise is at the center which may be demonstrated from every era of the canon. That's how much he was convinced of this promise motif. Um, whether you talk about from Adam to Abraham, whether you talk about Abraham to Moses or Moses to David or David to the exile, the exile to Jesus or Jesus to the apostles or the apostles to us, it is, it is all promise. God promises. God promises to us and we simply believe those promises. And, and, and there's much truth to that. Um, Mark Dever, when he wrote his summary books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, his Old Testament book was called Promises Made. His New Testament text was called Promises Kept. Looking at the fact that God has kept his promises, and we look back to those promises that he has kept for us in Jesus, but there's also a lot of promises that we have in the future that await us. Romans 8, verse 17 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's the promise, right, that, that our glory in eternity will be better than the suffering now. And so there's lots of promises that we have to, to look forward to, but we can look back to Christ and say, yes, God fulfilled a lot of promises in Jesus. And church family, I just encourage you this day to hold on to the promises of God and sing with the hymn writers, standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing. What? Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. What? Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I now can see perfect, present cleansing in the blood for me. Standing in the liberty where Christ makes free, I'm standing on the promises of God. And we could go, again, a couple more stanzas there, but I just say, let's stand on the promises of God. That is where our faith lies. The promise comes by faith. We receive the promise by faith. Well, my second point this morning, right? the, the promise is nullified by law. It's found in verses 14 and 15. It says this, For If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no wrath, there is no transgression. Right? In other words, if God worked in such a way that those who obeyed God's law would be heirs of the kingdom, then then faith towards God and his promises towards us are meaningless. If it's by the doing of the law, faith and promise are ineffective. Right? In other words, right? you can only approach God from one way. You either approach God by faith on his promises of what he's done for us, or you approach God by the way of law and reward. This is what I do. I'm going to get there by my law and reward. And there's no mixing of these. I mean, it's either one or the other. You can't come both ways. You can't come by faith and by law. You come either by faith or law. You don't come by faith and works. You either come to God on the basis of faith 
You come to God on the basis of works. Okay, for instance, you came to church this morning. That's not my drone. I wish it was my drone, but it's illegal to fly it that high. This is Google, Google Maps, okay? And uh, Rock Valley Bible Church is in there someplace. Kids, do you see it? See it? Where is it? Where is it? It's way it's right up here on the left. There's Rock, Rock Valley Bible Church. And there's my car. I was, I was working the day that that, um, that picture was taken. I was here. And um, so there's Rock Valley Bible Church. And when you came... You came one of two ways to Rock Valley Bible Church. There it is. You either came by the way of Alpine, and you may have come from the north, you may have come from the south, and my guess is most all of you came that way. How many of you came that way? Almost all of you. Or you can come the way that that we come. We come via Forest Hills and through the neighborhoods because we like to drive by the Goins' house. Just check up on you, make sure that everything's going okay. (laughs) That's what we like to do. Okay, so how many of you came by Forest Hills' way? You guys, and you guys did too, right? But you, you can't come both ways. You say, how'd you come to church? Well, I came by Alpine and Forest Hills. Like, no, you only come from the east or you come from the west. You don't come from both of those places. And so it is with God. When you come to him, you either come to him by law or you come to him by faith. And, and what Paul says here is this. If you come by law... There's no place for faith in the promises of God. Look again at verse 14. It says this, If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. As I have said, right, the promise is nullified by the law. Now, that's not to say the existence of the law nullifies the promise. It's not the mere fact that, uh, that we have a law that exists that uh, negates the promise. Um, in fact, you remember that this, this picture here, Abraham, 2000 B.C., Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, slavery in Egypt, Moses, 1400 B.C. Well, in uh, Galatians chapter 3 that, that Darren read for us this morning, Paul makes this point about the existence of a law. He says in Galatians 3.17, the law, which came 430 years after right, being slaves in Egypt... It does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, right, the existence of a law doesn't void the promise. In fact, right, you you can't undo the promise. When God promises, he will bring it to pass. And what's important here is the promise comes first and has priority over anything else that comes next. And in in Galatians 3.15, then Paul even talks about, okay, I'll give you a human example. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Like you got a, a man-made covenant, you got this agreement, this treaty. You don't nullify it, you don't stop it, you don't change it in any way. It is done, it's set. And so likewise, the covenant with Abraham is done and set. The law doesn't change that. It's our legal terms today. If you make a contract, sign on the bottom line, it's legally binding. Can't ignore it, can't change it. Now we, in our frail human wisdom, right? We can go back and renegotiate and change. But, but if the one who says, no, I signed it, I want to keep it just as it is, they have every right and legal leverage to keep it. And an example of this is when we moved to Rockford. We were at Kishwaukee Bible Church, and they sent us up here to plant Rock Valley Bible Church. And when, when we came up here, it was 2001, and um, so we were looking for a house. We saw a house we thought was just perfect for us. And so we 
made an offer and the offer was accepted and we signed and da da da, da and we said, okay, well, here's, here's the day we're going to close. And uh, about a month into this, I think it was whatever, um, we were pretty flexible. We knew this house. I think we gave 30 days to 90 days, whenever you want, we're going to close in this house. They said 90 days. We're like, okay, we'll close in 90 days. And uh, as it went on, they started getting cold feet, and they really hadn't been house hunting and kind of were in a, a pickle a little bit and kind of said, uh, well, um, we'd like to keep the house. And um, we talked with our lawyers and everything, and we kind of said, no, this is a perfect house for us. We signed that. We're not going to change it. No, we're going we're gonna to keep the house. We're, we're going we're gonna to close on that. And uh, they couldn't change that because we were the ones who signed. Now, by mutual agreement, we could have, but a man-made covenant, when it is, it doesn't, it doesn't change. And, and something later, in this case, the promise of God to Abraham and the law later doesn't change the promise earlier. In fact, that's Paul's exact point in Romans 3, verse 18. If the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Promise and then law. So know your biblical history. This is where the Bible readers, and I think I love it when the Bible does this, when it, when it talks about history and you've got to really understand all the things. And it's really important that the promise came first and then the law. And the promise takes precedence, not the law. Or as I have said this morning, the promise is nullified by law. And, and what I mean by that is if you're seeking through the law to obtain the inheritance Right? Because if you're seeking to obtain eternal inheritance by the law, then you no longer can trust the promise that God made to you through Abraham. So you can nullify the promise if the law is how you're trying to get your way to God. And, and, and if you want to work your way to God, I just say good luck. It's not a pleasant experience. In fact, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, that the, the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. I mean, even the coming of the law ought to teach us that the law brings wrath. Right? When the law came to Israel, it came upon Mount Sinai with smoke and fire and noise that grew louder and louder and louder and louder and thundered so bad and so big that the people were fearful. They said, no, no, Moses, you go up for us. Listen to the... Testimony of Exodus 20, 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. When the law came, they trembled. And then they they said this, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen to you. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And here was the law. That was coming, and it was full of wrath. It's a it's a great picture of how the law works in our in our lives. It's not always so pleasant. It comes with its demands. It comes with its consequences of failure. It is a taskmaster. It is hard, and we will never be able to fulfill it. And if we try, we'll just nullify the promise. If you've read John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, um, I hope you have. The Bible's the most read book in the world. Pilgrim's Progress is right there, second place from everything I can discern. It's a great allegory of what it means to be a Christian, which many Christians today could could take heed to. The Christian life is a life of struggle and anxiety and pain and hardship and endurance. 
But if you've read that, then maybe you remember um, how John Bunyan described the law. He described himself walking along, meeting a, a man named Worldly Wiseman. It was wise according to the ways of the world, not the ways of God. Evangelist said, you go straight to the yonder wicked gate. And so he was going away. Worldly wise men caught him and said, no, that's not the way to go. You want to go to see Mr. Legality in the town of civility. And it's just, it's just right over this way. And um, Christian um, was persuaded, seduced in that way, and so went off that way and turned, turned to go to seek Mr. Legality's house. And here's what John Bunyan writes. But behold, when he got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high. And also the side of it that was next the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture farther, lest the hill should fall on his head. Whenceforth he stood still and knew not what to do. Also his burden on his back representing his sin now seemed to be heavier to him than while he was on the way. And there also came flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he sweat and did quake with fear. And there he was. There's the picture going to the town of Mr. Legality. And, and it's, it's the hard road up this, up this hard, steep, steep, craggy hill of Mount Sinai. If you want to go the way of the law, have at it. But that's the path you're going to take. It's because... The law brings wrath. And with the law really comes an understanding of transgression. That's why, that's why Bunyan said that my pack got bigger and it seemed to have gotten harder. It seemed to have gotten heavier as you walk up the path. Because the more you see, the more you know of God's law, the more you see your sin. And with the presence of a law, it says uh, this, the law brings an understanding of transgression. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Total parenthetical point here in verse 15. Well, there's no law, there is no transgression. That is, right, with the knowledge of a law comes the knowledge of sin. With the knowledge of a law comes the knowledge of transgression. In Romans 3, verse 20, it's what Paul says. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And much as has to do, right, with, with the purpose of the law. The law was not given to sanctify us. If God says we're made righteous through faith, right, we believe in God, He gives us righteousness, what's the law? It's not to sanctify us, not to purify us, not to save us, but it is to instruct us. It is to guide us. It is to make our lives walk in accordance with the, the will of God. But, but if you tried to walk the law for any time or you try to walk the commandments of the New Testament for any time, you, you see how you see what you want to do, but you see you can't do. Paul's going to hit that in Romans chapter 7. I see the good that I want, but I, I do the very thing I hate. And he talks about this internal battle as we deal with sanctification in chapter 6 and 7. As he sees the law, he says it's holy and righteous and good, but the law condemned him. And the very promise that the very commandment that promised life actually proved to be death to him. So the law promises life, but you eat it and it actually brings death. But the law was really given to instruct us. Uh, the big purpose of the law is to instruct us in our sins so that we might believe and trust in the righteousness of God. And, and I just say, as you try to live by a set of rules, and I can experience condemnation. And there are plenty of people and plenty of churches which will pile rule upon rule upon rule upon rule, try to create this homogenous sort of culture of all these people who live this same way, and it creates a highly judgmental sort of place where people are condemned in their sin, and it's not a happy place. A happy place is when grace comes. 
Right? When, when God gives us grace and we trust in God's grace to empower us to walk in a way pleasing in his sight. And I, I just say this, that don't try to live by a set of rules. You're going to experience condemnation. You will miss the blessings of the joys of the promises of God. And I say in your homes as well, don't push rules deep and strong into your home where you're demanding your kids. Right? got to live by the rule of the law. You're just going to create rebellion there. High control of parents often creates rebellion in kids. You'll nullify the promise. So don't try to regulate your behavior of your children. Long list of rules. You miss the power of the gospel to change lives. I love the poem. It says this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Catch that? The law says, run, you work really hard. But I'm not giving your hands or feet. I'm not helping you in any way. I'm going to make it hard. You're going to struggle. But the gospel calls us something higher. Not just to run, but to fly. We're <laughs> like, we can't fly. Exactly, the gospel gives us wing to fly. That's the gospel. And that's where you, you want to just avoid the law and understand the promise. All right, my third and last point this morning. The promise rests on grace. Verses 16 and 17. I want to read them for you. That is why, he's kind of concluding now, that is why it depends on faith. Not the law, right? It depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Uh, and I love it when scripture gives clarifying purposes. When it like, like brings down and says, this is why this happened. We, we saw that even last week in chapter 4 verse 11, right? The purpose of why it is that he received the sign of circumcision while he was still believing is to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness be counted to them as well and the father of all who are circumcised. Right? That was last week's message. Here's the purpose. And again, we see another purpose, right? This is why it depends on faith, right? In other words, in other words God intentionally designed our salvation this way depending upon faith, not upon works, so that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offsprings. In other words, God is determined to save us by his sheer sovereign grace. And in order to do that, our salvation cannot be based on the law even just a little bit. based on our trust in God. It's based upon our faith in God. And, and it can't, I say, just can't even be a little bit. I've heard people say we're saved by grace, through, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. You add just one little thing and you're missing it. That, that's the big controversy of Acts chapter 15. Must we be circumcised as Gentiles to come in in order to inherit the promises? And there are some saying yes. And I'm saying that you're just adding that little thing. And if you keep circumcision, you are under obligation to keep the whole law is what Paul says. 
It says, if you think you just need one little work to make you right for God, you, you need to keep it all because all of a sudden you're coming by law, verses 14 and 15. But God says he designed it by faith so that it might rest on grace. That's why, look back at Romans 3, 24 and 25, and look at how Paul says our salvation is. Says that we are justified, Romans 3.24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. We are saved by grace, but we receive that grace through faith. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. By grace you are saved through what? Through faith. So you don't earn it by your faith. It really comes by grace is how we're saved. You say, how are you saved? Well, by grace you're saved. Well, how, how does that actually mediate it? Well, it's mediated by faith. But if you look at Ephesians 2, by grace we are saved through faith, <clears throat> and that... Salvation, faith, grace is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. God gives us faith to believe. That's why it's all grace. If it's any of us, it's not biblical salvation. And you're going to choose the way of the law. And that's what Paul says. He saved us by faith with the whole aim that it might rest on grace. I know we love grace, Rock Valley Bible Church. May we enjoy his grace today. So you think about that, you reflect upon that. Just realizing that, that, that it's the grace of God and there's joy there. Suppose the law which comes with hardness and judgmental, right? But, but grace comes with life and free and liberty and happiness. Also, it's interesting here that it might rest on grace and be a guarantee, be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now, he talks about all his offspring. He's talking, I think, about Jews and Gentiles, right? Not only, as he continues on, <clears throat> the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So the adherent of the law there, you know, that, that might be a Jew, as maybe was talking about, who shares the faith of Abraham, the Gentile or, or whatever, but there is his offspring, and it continues on. Who's, this is where this text is really kind of difficult. It's talking about all these things. Who's the father of us all. Just that was the point of last week. I've made you the father of many, many nations. That's either Jews or Greeks, circumcised or uncircumcised. That is, that is all of us. But the main point is this is that it might rest on grace and be guaranteed. Now let me ask you, how can it be guaranteed, the salvation that Christ gives? Only if God is the one doing the guaranteeing. If it's depending upon us, it's not guaranteed. It's guaranteed only if we depend upon the Lord for all things. In fact, that is the very definition of grace, is that it's unearned, it's unmerited, it comes sovereignly, by God's kindness to us. That's what grace is. It's all of him. And so, so even, even that, that's why, as I talked a couple of weeks ago, it's why it's by faith where we just look to God and say, right? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I sing. Or so we're going to close our service today, right? Not all my hands have done. What do I do? I bring filthy hands. But in Christ, I can bring clean hands through Christ. That's what it means to rest on grace. That's what it means to be, to be guaranteed. It's, it's all of God. And then he ends here by talking about God and his, his power and the presence of God whom he believed. 
who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. Here he's just talking about the, the powerful God who raises people from the dead. And then, and then Paul's going to segue into that talking about um, um, Isaac and the sacrifice there and, and Abraham's faith of that. But it also he speaks here about God who can raise people from the dead. You've got to be powerful to do that. And also it speaks about God who's the all-powerful God who, who brings into existence the things that do not exist. When he speaks and the world comes in, let there be light and there is light. Let the dry land appear and it appears. Let there be beasts of the field and they come. He, he creates ex nihilo. He creates from nothing. Nothing that we have done ever creates from nothing. We always take something to create something. But God is the all-powerful God. And the importance there, I think, about the all-powerful God is that that's the one upon whom our salvation is guaranteed. That's why it's all of grace, because God, the sovereign, powerful God, guarantees it. Last week at our visitor's lunch, right, we talked about the things that we trust in, right? We believe, our core beliefs are believing in the power of God. Right here is where it is. He's all-powerful. He can raise the dead. He can bring creation into existence. We believe in the power of the Word of God. That's why I've tried not, nothing fancy today, just verses 6, 13 through 17 today. And next time, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, just opening His Word because it's powerful. And we believe in the power of the Gospel, which is Christ, which is grace alone. I mean, this, these are our core beliefs here today, just coming right out of this. And that's how God has designed salvation, by faith that it might rest on grace. Because grace is the foundation of our salvation. Grace is the foundation of where we stand not by works of the law. We're not working. It's all grace. And let's live and lavish and enjoy that grace. We pray together, and then Ryan's going to come and lead us in a final song. Father, I pray that we would, at Rock Valley Bible Church, rightly understand the promise, the law, and faith. Father, I pray that we would rightly uh, embrace and understand that that everything we have really comes from you by your mercy as you simply promise it to us. President Trump will try with all his earthly effort to make true on these promises. Perhaps he will fail and, and not, not keep a promise. I did this week, even not keeping a promise. God, thank you that you are the promise-keeping God and that when you make a promise, you will bring it to pass. And that's why our salvation is guaranteed, God. So I pray that we, even today, as a church, this week, throughout the months, throughout this Easter season, as we anticipate Easter, come and rest and reflect upon the, the wonderful grace of God that comes to us in Christ Jesus. God, may we never walk the path to Sinai. But if we do, like Christian, and we start up that path, God, may evangelists come along and lead us, and may we get back on the, on the straight path to the wicked gate. God, going there by grace through faith. So help us, O oh Lord, in these things. Strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.